conversations, random, off-the-cuff discussions on all things paranormal. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to Paranormal Conversations. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, we've brought Paranormal Conversations back. This is episode number 11. We have, and I'm so happy about it. Yes, and we're going to be kicking it off again here with an excellent guest. This is Sylvia Schultz. You guys are going to love this interview. She's just come out with a new book called Gone on Vacation, and she's going to share some incredible stories with us. There's a screaming mummy. (laughs) Indeed. Haunted sub. Yes, there is. And ghost animals. One of my favorites. So really looking forward to you guys listening to this. Enjoy. Sylvia Schultz is a paranormal investigator and author who has been working in the field for several decades. Not that we're saying she's old or anything like that. We've been doing a long time, too. She has authored several books, including 44 Years in Darkness, Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital, Grave Deeds and Dead Plots, Hunting Demons, A True Story of the Dark Side of the Supernatural, And she has a new book out called Gone on Vacation, which features haunted zoos, museums, and amusement parks. She also hosts the podcast Lights Out with Sylvia Schultz. And Sylvia joined us back in 2016 to talk about the Peoria State Hospital, so you guys might remember her. And she's joining us again to talk about all kinds of haunted locations that she's got in this new book. How are you doing, Sylvia? Oh, man, I am fantastic. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Well... (laughs) What got you interested in paranormal and the dark side of history to begin with? Oh, boy, I have always loved ghost stories. My father would tell me ghost stories. I grew up in the Chicago area, so I grew up hearing all these wonderful stories about the ghostly monks of St. James the Sag and the screaming mummy at the Field Museum, and I just could not get enough of it. Ghost stories in general were okay, but what really got my attention was the the real ones, the true ones, the ones that actually happen. Those are the best. And I've also really always loved history. And I realized when I grew up and realized, oh, hey, you know what? I can, I can write these stories down and, and share them with people on my own. I realized very quickly that you can't understand the ghost stories of a place without knowing the history, because that's why we have the stories, is because of these people's lived experiences and the the spooky things that happened that are now entrenched in history as ghost stories. You know, in your most recent book, you focus on hauntings at places most of us consider to be fun, but not necessarily haunted, especially like a zoo. Most people don't think of zoos as being haunted or amusement parks. Why do you think spirits would gravitate to these kinds of locations? Oh, the same reason they gravitate towards theaters. There's so much emotion there, especially amusement parks. You've got, you've got rides. You've got little kids racing around. You've got teenage kids racing around. You've got people having a fun time. And when there's that much energy in a place, it draws the attention of any spirit that's around. Museums, that's kind of a, a gimme because people's stuff is there just to visit there's a a wonderful artifact in the victoria and albert museum that is a haunted chair 
there is a chair that belonged to the wife of actor David Garrick. Her name is Ava Weigel. And she loved this chair so much that she is attached to it even after death. So she was chair in the museum. This The chair is on exhibit and it's really close to, you, you could lean over and touch it. I didn't because I'm not a savage. <laughs> But I, I have seen, and this did not happen when I was there, unfortunately, but I have seen videos in which the seat of the chair, it's upholstered in this beautiful lime green fabric with like a gold fleur-de-lis on the seat. And I have seen videos in which that fleur-de-lis kind of folds in the middle as though someone is sitting hmm. on it. But there's no one there. But that's Ava just enjoying a, a rest in her chair. So, Very nice. yeah, that's people come back to visit their stuff. It is amazing how much stuff does seem to get attachments to it. And I, al- I often wonder, I mean, how does that happen? Obviously, it's not something that I think we can ever prove scientifically, but it, it's always interesting to me when you have an object that somebody really loved. And it seems like chairs come up a lot with that. You know, people like to sit in the rocking chair that they used to rock in all the time and stuff. It's just, I don't know how it works, but it is fascinating. (laughs) Oh, good heavens. I could tell you half a dozen stories that involve haunted chairs. Absolutely. How about an entire human body? (laughs) I was gifted an absolutely wonderful story. Um, Of course, I wrote about the screaming mummy at the Field Museum. Had to write about that. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I was gifted a story from a woman who she leads ghost tours in different cities and this the city that she works in they've they're the ghost tour company is all over the united states and the, she leads the tours in milwaukee wisconsin the reason she has got this museum as her stomping grounds is because a security guard shared a story with her uh, security guards are a wonderful source of stories because they're there when a building is shut down and closed to the public and very quiet and sometimes very dark. And a lot of things happen that people might not notice if they're walking around and there are a lot of people around. So this security guard at the Milwaukee Museum was just at the beginning of her shift. Her shift had been going on for maybe half an hour. So she was on the first floor and she happened to glance up at the mezzanine and she saw movement up there. And she said to herself, okay, museum's been closed for half an hour. There's not supposed to be anybody up there. So she went up to the mezzanine and halfway down the hallway, she saw what she described as a coalesced cloud of black stuff, like like a swarm of flies were flying really close together. Whoa. In formation. Yeah, it was interesting. (laughs) And instead of, you know, turning tail and screaming and running like a little girl in the other direction, (laughs) she, (laughs) she did her job and she followed this swarm of stuff that was going down the hallway at a fairly good clip. The thing got to the end of the hallway and she said, ah, there's nowhere for it to go. This is great. I've got it cornered. Well, she was wrong about that. The cloud of flies or whatever it was hung a right and went into a room in which there were just there was a display of South American mummies. Oh. There was <laughs> there was a female mummy that was 
she was displayed kind of as she was found in a shallow grave. She was curled in a fetal position, and her her long black hair was now gray with age and the soil that she had been buried in, and she was dressed in a faded brown and pink woven material. And her mouth had fallen open as she naturally mummified. And this cloud of things, of dark stuff, went through the glass and into the mummy's open mouth. Oh, my goodness. I was like, if she says that this thing went into its mouth, I'm going to freak out. (laughs) Straight out of Supernatural. Wow. (laughs) My jaw was on the floor when Allison told me this story. I'm like, can I tell the story in my book? Please, 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 please. (laughs) So she graciously shared her story with me. And uh, yeah, that story just blew my mind. I have been reading and collecting ghost stories for so long that when I find a real, real wowzer like that, it's just as much a thrill for me as it is for my readers. Absolutely. We're the exact same way because it's always, you know, the lights flicked on and off, the doors open and close on there, da-da-da-da-da. And then you get to a line and it's like, I've never heard that before. And then you do get really excited about (laughs) it because you're like, oh, it manifested in a way I've never heard of before. Yes, yes. Oh, there was a smell of perfume. Right, yeah. Okay, big (laughs) deal. My favorite person in the world is someone who can tell me a ghost story I haven't heard before. (laughs) Definitely. In in terms of zoo stories and and the interest of the spirits of the animals, some people don't believe that animals have spirits, but based on the stories that you share, they definitely do. So what's your personal opinion on animal spirits? I absolutely believe that animals have spirits. I have seen pictures that have been captured of the spirits of a cat, a dog, um, I was talking with another ghost hunting group here in Peoria. This was years ago, but they did a, a home investigation and the woman's great Dane had passed a couple years before. And he always lay in a certain spot in the hallway and the investigators took a photograph at that spot with a thermal camera and they caught the image of a great Dane. Oh wow. my goodness. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So many stories about animal spirits coming back. The one that one of the ones that I share in Gone on Vacation is the phantom lioness at the Cincinnati Zoo. They have a lioness that will pace around and this this lioness only shows up when you're alone. And that's hard to do at a busy public zoo. But if you find yourself alone walking down a tree-lined avenue and it's very quiet, only the trees, only the birds are chirping in the trees, you might get this feeling that you're being watched. And we've all had that experience, feeling like you're being watched. But this, is, this isn't your garden variety eyes on me feeling. This is a deep, bone-deep sensation that you are prey. Yeah, I was going to say dinner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And oh you'll my. look around and you won't see anything, but this feeling continues. You keep on walking. And then from the underbrush beside you, alongside the path, you'll hear the heavy tread of a very big cat. And you'll hear the chuff of a lioness. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> 
And if you're really lucky or unlucky as the case may be, you may look over it, you might see a pair of glowing yellow eyes as the lioness watching you. She's never attacked anyone. It's just like she's keeping watch. She's the queen of the jungle and she's keeping watch over her fellow animals. Sure. This is one of my favorite stories in this whole book. And this book is loaded with awesome stories. But this particular story didn't actually happen at a zoo, but it was too wonderful and too weird not to include it. This actually came from a wildlife refuge in Washington, the Turnbull National Wildlife Refuge. So in the 1980s, there was a family who went on vacation there. There's a mother and father and two boys. And they were hiking in this wildlife refuge, and they came across a snake. There are five snakes that call this refuge home, and they they came across one of these snakes. And it was sunning itself on a rock, and very chill, <laughs> very, very laid-back animal, seemed harmless. And the dad captured it, and the boys named it Slinky and wanted to take it home. <laughs> and mom said, Let's just take a picture instead. <laughs> so this this snake was was a few feet long. It was a big snake. So the dad posed holding the snake in his hands, and he had part of the body of the snake in each hand, and you know it was a head dangling down one side and the tail dangling down the other side. It was a big snake. <laughs> So the mom took a picture and the, the, the boys were all happy about that. And the, the dad knelt down and put his hands on the ground. And the snake just slithered away, just happy as could be in the, the mid 1980s. So they, they didn't have digital cameras or anything like that. So they dropped off the film to be developed when they got home. A couple of days later, they pick up the film and they're going through the holiday snaps. And they're, oh, yeah, reliving the memories of the wonderful vacation they took. And then they got to the picture of the snake. And dad is standing there holding his empty hands out. Oh, my word. So I'm actually a snake enthusiast. Oh, snakes are great. I love them. But I've never come across a spirit of a snake. (laughs) That's incredible. I I love that. Thank you. This was one of those stories that, man, I've never heard this before. This is great. And snakes, snakes are so cool anyway. I'm definitely a bigger fan than Diane for certain. Well, and this is why I I was looking through the book and I saw this story and I went, oh, Kelly's going to love this one because they go out. What do you call it? Herping Herping. all the time. So they go out and get these snakes and they take pictures all the time. And Mm -hmm. so to tell somebody, because the crazy thing is, it's one thing if you see what you think looks like a snake on the ground and you take a picture and well, maybe you were mistaken and it wasn't really a snake. It was a stick or something. But he they right. were handling it. And the dad is like holding it while they're taking the picture. You you don't imagine that, especially a whole group as large as this family, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's just incredible. Hmm. The other story that I really like, too, is a lot of people aren't aware of this. You You mentioned the Victorian Albert Museum. Well, another place to check out overseas and we've covered this location on the podcast, is the Tower of London. And this place, you know, it's incredibly haunted. It has all these stories, but a lot of people aren't aware that it had a menagerie in it, which, you know, was basically a zoo there. And you have a story about a ghost bear or something from that, don't you? Yes, yes, I do. I was there in the spring, and when you're walking around, you there are these, there's sculptures around the tower of the bear and an elephant and some apes. And people are like, what is, what's going on with this? 
and yeah, they're they're almost like they're metal sculptures. They're almost like chicken wire. They're very abstract. But yeah, and and that's people don't realize that yes, there was a zoo there. The kings and queens of England would get presents from other kings and queens of neighboring countries. And sometimes these presents were animals because animals are cool. So what better present to give a fellow king than a, a really nifty animal from your own country? There was an African elephant that was sent by Louis the Ninth of France. It was presented to um, Henry the Henry the Third, and the elephant lived for a few years at the Tower of London, but it actually died in 1258. Now it could have been that the damp English climate didn't agree with the elephant, or it could have been due to the fact that they were feeding this elephant and giving him red wine to drink. We're not exactly sure what caused the elephant's demise, but it might have been the wine that it was drinking. Oh, but my. yes, <laughs> <laughs> good, great. That's and, unfortunate. Um, <laughs> Henry the Third was also gifted. Um, a, a polar bear in 1252 by King Hakon of Norway. The polar bear was a big hit. And that's one of the bears that it has a sculpture there in the Tower of London. It's, it's obviously a polar bear. And the sculpture of the bear has a shackle around its leg. And the actual real bear had a shackle around its leg too. And not for the reason you might think, not because they were being cruel to the animal or whatever, but for the first year that the bear lived in the Tower of London, the city of London provided 20 pence a day to buy fish for the bear to eat. And after about a year, someone realized that, hey, you know what? We're right next to the River Thames, and there are fish in the River Thames. Why don't we just stake the bear out on the bank and let him wade into the river and catch his own fish? <laughs> so Good that's idea. what they did. They fed the bear for free. So the other bear, that was at the Tower of London was, uh, a, his name was Old Martin. He was a grizzly bear who was given to George III, the, the king of the revolution, by the Hudson's Bay Company in 1811. And he was still in residence by 1822. The bear story at the Tower of London, it happened while Old Martin was at the Tower so the, the, there was a security guard. There was a, a, a guard patrolling the, the ramparts of the, the tower. He was in the archway of Martin Tower. He was, he was on his rounds. This is the year 1816. And he watched. He was, he, it was late at night, and he was making his rounds, but he, he was kind of distracted by the fact that there was a mist coming through a gap underneath a door between the, the bottom of the door and the door sill. And this gap kind of poured through the door and coalesced into the shape of a bear, a grizzly bear. And this bear raised itself to its full height. I mean, grizzly bears are like 10 feet tall. And it stared down at the guard. And the guard, his mind was kind of on autopilot. He had just watched this bear kind of appear in front of him. He didn't know what else to do. So he took his spear and tried to run the bear through, thinking it was a real bear, thinking it was old Martin. And his spear went right through the bear and stuck in the wood of the door. And the bear went poof and disappeared. And the guard fainted dead away. I would imagine. <laughs> I would imagine. Good grief. <laughs> he, he came to just long enough to stammer out his tale to his fellow guards. 
And then he passed out again, and he actually died of fright a few days later. He, he just went into shock oh, and just wow. never, never recovered from it. Wow. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Strange goings on at the Tower <laughs> of London. I would say so. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Well, we love a great amusement park. Can you share a bit about some of the amusement parks that you've found to be haunted by spirits? Oh, absolutely. One of the most haunted amusement parks in the United States is um, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. This is a this is a situation where we we say what causes a place to be haunted, and sometimes it's something that happened at the place, a, a death or a tragedy that happened at the place. Sometimes it's the fact that it's built on land where something happened centuries ago. Well, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park has all of that. It was built on land that belonged at first to the Shawnee Indian tribe. And then the Shawnees got pushed off of that land by the white settlers after the revolution. People started moving west, and this is some of the land that they ended up. There was a small European settlement that settled in that area in um, 1778. The Shawnee realized that the white men were coming and taking their land, and they they went into, they kind of retreated into their own little villages, but they were still really resentful that their land was being taken away. And in 1783, all of this came to a head. There was a family named the Clays, Mitchell and Phoebe Clay, that settled in the area. They had many children, as pioneer families often did. One August day in 1783, Mitchell Clay went out hunting with a couple of his sons. Two other sons Bartley and Ezekiel were in the fields and they were stacking sheaves of wheat to dry. It was August. It was wheat harvest time. Phoebe Clay, Mitchell's wife, sent her daughter Tabitha down to the Bluestone River to wash some clothes. And then all the rest of the kids were in the cabin with Phoebe. That's when 11 Shawnee warriors decided to attack. They attacked the boys in the field. They shot Bartley dead and took Ezekiel hostage. The Tabitha heard the commotion and ran from where she was doing laundry at the river. She saw a Shawnee warrior grab a fistful of her brother's hair and lift the boy's head, intending to scalp him. And Tabitha actually grabbed the knife and threw it away. That was very brave of her, but it didn't do her any good. The other, another Indian brave picked that same knife up and attacked her with it. Mm. And she was scalped and she was cut into pieces. So Tabitha and Bartley were both dead right there in the field. Ezekiel was taken to the Indian village. Phoebe heard the commotion. There was a neighbor visiting at the time. And Phoebe begged the neighbor to shoot the natives. And the neighbor said, you know what? If, there, there are 11 of them. I, I can't shoot them all. So he just kind of made his escape. Phoebe took the rest of the children and escaped to another neighbor's cabin. And a few hours after that, Mitchell and his other two sons came home and they had no idea what had happened. They just found an empty cabin, two dead kids. They real, they, they figured out eventually that Ezekiel had been taken to the Native American village. They went to ransom him 
but it was too late. And when they got there, he had already been burned at the stake. So all they could do was take his his body home. And the chief of the village actually lent them a horse to bring this kid's body home with the understanding that Mitchell was going to return the horse after they got home. And he never did. And a few days later, the Native Americans came and, and took the horse back. The settlers were understandably very, very upset about this. Mitchell and Phoebe bury their children on the land. Phoebe refused to live there anymore. They moved away and they they never returned. So that was back in 1783. And these three graves just stayed there getting overgrown. That land was also used as a burial land for the Native Americans as well. And nobody realized this. Um, in 1926, you know, 100, almost 150 years later, there was a fellow named Conley T. Snydow who bought the land intending to make an mu- amusement park out of it. He had zero idea that there were so many people buried on this land. He set up his amusement park. He had a swing ride. He had a Ferris wheel. He had a swimming pool. He had a dance hall. And it was a really wonderful attraction from 1926 till about 1966. There was a a kid who, a mother who dropped her 11-year-old son off for a day of playing at the park. This is is July 3rd in 1966. She came at the end of the day to pick him up and she couldn't find him. And she told the park employees and everyone's running around the park looking for this kid. They actually found him in the swimming pool. He had drowned. He has, he was exploring the pool and he stuck his arm into a drain and got stuck there. Oh no. Yeah. So horrible. Right. Right. And, um, in the early 1950s, there was a young girl who was on the swing ride and the swing ride was right next to a soda concession stand. And there was a fellow delivering soda to the stand and he was driving a truck and he backed up the truck without looking and hit the ride and killed the little girl. Mm. So there were a couple of deaths at the park too, which just added to the hauntings there. After these couple of deaths, the amusement park just went bust. People were not comfortable being at the park anymore. They knew this history that was going on. They're like, you know, no. It So it closed in 1966. But in 1985, there was another fellow who bought the park intending to revive it. Lake Shawnee 2.0 lasted a couple of years, but people had heard the rumors, they'd heard the stories, and it just never did do well. But they realized that there were ghost stories going around. This fellow, Gaylord White, decided to turn it into a place where people could come and investigate. And that's what it is now. They People people from all over the United States, all over the world, come to Lake Shawnee Amusement Park just to investigate. And these these spirits are still there. The Indian spirits are still there. It's always a nice thing to go to the burial ground and show your respect, make an offering of tobacco or something to the spirits of these Native Americans that were buried there long before it was an amusement park. 
one of the stories, one of the spirits that is still there at the Shawnee, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park is the spirit of that little girl. And she is probably the most famous spirit that still haunts the park. Gaylord White Sr., the fellow who bought the amusement park trying to get it going again, was riding around on a tractor mowing the grass. And he, he would feel a weight pressing down on his shoulders as he worked, as he drove around the place. And one day, Mr. White felt a presence while he was mowing. He was used to that by then. But then he realized that the little girl was sitting next to him on the tractor seat. And that was not usual. He hadn't seen her before. He just felt her. But he this time he saw her. And apparently, she told him that she wanted that tractor. And he's like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So he stopped the tractor, got off, and it has sat there ever since. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It is her tractor. Nobody uses it but her. It it, it just sits rusting in a field. Nobody wants to move that tractor. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, you wouldn't want to touch it now because you'd be like, uh, since she thinks it's hers, probably not a good idea. It's got ghost cooties on it. (laughs) There are literally thousands of museums out there. And if you talk about haunted, I think pretty much almost all of them are just for the fact that most of them have artifacts in them. But let's just say there's, you know, a few hundred of them that are haunted. So I'm going to ask you a really tough question. Like, do you have a favorite haunted museum? Oh, uh, can I narrow it down to the top three? (laughs) Yes. All right. My top three favorite haunted museums are the Field Museum, because of Harwa, because of the Screaming Mummy, because that was one of the very first ghost stories I ever heard. So Harwa has a a very soft place in my heart. Also in Chicago is the Museum of Science and Industry, and that has several haunted objects. It's got the the Pioneer Zephyr, the train that is on display there. Um, It's also, the coal mine is sort of kind of haunted. I didn't really find any good stories there, but when they put the coal mine together, they actually sourced some of the parts from actual working coal mines where miners had perished. So some of that residual energy is still there. But the PhD resistance at the Museum of Science and Industry is the U-505. It's the German submarine that was captured, the only German submarine that was captured in World War II. Wow, I'm impressed they have it inside the museum. Yeah, well, it wasn't always. When they got the museum, and when they got the the, the submarine in the, oh, I want to say it was the 1960s, it was kept outside. And when I went there on field trips in grade school in the 1980s, it was still outside. And it, they realized after a while that it was, I mean, this is Chicago, and the winters here are rough. So they they raised money to have it brought inside. And there's this great big, huge room with, um, y- you You come in and there's a really great exhibit leading up to this the submarine in this great big room. And you go through and you see this little, this diorama of these sol- the sailor- sailors that have been, their ship has been, their merchant ship has been sunk by a submarine. And They've managed to scramble onto some wreckage and they're, they're drifting there waiting for rescue. And there's, there's 
propaganda posters and um there's a little film of of the, the um people in a merchant marine boat trying to escape a submarine attack really neat stuff and then they tell you the story of these hunter killer hacks of ships that went out looking for submarines to destroy them and there was one of the captains of these ships named captain dan gallery and he had the crazy idea of you know instead of trying to destroy every single one of these submarines wouldn't it be cool if we could maybe capture one and see what's inside and they managed to do that they captured the u505 there was only one death there was one german sailor who was killed during the capture of the U-505. Everyone else survived. There were no American casualties, one German casualty. Everyone else got rescued. They were taken to a prisoner of war camp, and they spent the rest of the war there. It was paramount that secrecy had to be maintained. If the Germans realized that the U-505 was not just lost at sea, but had actually been captured by the Allied powers, they would change all of their tactics. So it was really, really important to keep this capture an absolute secret for the rest of the war. And they managed it. When they boarded the U-505, they found something called an Enigma machine, and that was a coding device. And that helped them break, that helped Alan Turing break the Enigma code so um, people, the, the Allied powers could interpret the messages, the coded messages that the Axis was sending. So the capture of the U-505 was integral to the success of the Allied powers in World War II. Um, the ghost that haunts the U-505 is actually one of its previous captains. The, the history, I w I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of this, because the history of the U-505 is really fascinating. It had four different captains. She had four different captains. Um, the second captain was a man named Peter Cech, and he was loathed by his men. The first captain, Captain Langa, had, he was a good commander and his men liked him, but he developed appendicitis and he had to give up his command. So Peter Cech was put in command after him. And he was a real tough guy, really unfair. He would dress officers down in front of the enlisted men, just a complete jerk. And he wasn't a very good captain either. There was one time when the U-505 was being bombarded by British planes, and it took some damage, and he wanted to jump ship. He wanted to bail right away. And the first officer talked him into diving and trying to save the ship. The British plane that was dropping these depth charges was dropping them so close to the U-505 that the backblast from one of these depth charges actually hit the plane and knocked it out of the sky and killed the pilot. Oh, goodness. Movie. Yeah. So the U-505 was taking heavy damage. And instead of bailing, they talked Peter Cech into saving the ship and they limped to a port in France to get it repaired. Now, asking French mechanics to repair a German ship during World War II is not going to end well. Every single time they got something fixed and went back out, something else would break and they'd have to limp back to port. The French were sabotaging all of the repairs they were doing. 
Oh. Yeah. They were absolutely sabotaging the (laughs) crap out of this poor ship. And it got to be a running joke. All these other submarine captains were very snarky about it. They're like, well, we always know one, one, um, U501, one one U-boat captain that's going to come back after every mission. That's (laughs) Peter Check. And they're just really, really snarky about it, which is great. The U-505 finally got out to sea and she was doing her runs and she was attacked again. And this time, Czech was just so freaked out about the whole situation. He was in the conning tower and the ship was under attack. He was so freaked out about the whole situation that he pulled out his pistol and shot himself in the head. Oh, oh my, my word. But it didn't kill him. Oh, that's even worse. Oh, no. Right. So you've got this submarine that's diving to depth and you've got to be really, really quiet because you can hear stuff underwater. When a, a ship dives, you have to, everyone who's not essential personnel has to go lay down on their bunk and be really, really quiet because you can hear things. Water carries the sound. Not only have you got this pistol report, now you've got this guy screaming. So the first officer had the sailors take check to his bunk and hold a pillow over his face. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's why Peter Check haunts the U-505. I was just going to say, we yeah. can see why he's sticking around. Yeah, yeah. And I got to visit the U-505 this past summer, and I got to talk to, again, a security guard, and he was the one who told me a couple of really interesting stories. The first one was that he has been studying the U-505 and submarine warfare and, and World War II in general for many, many years. And he is of the opinion that Peter Check is not necessarily the one who pulled the trigger. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, there's somebody up in the conning tower, and it's a small hole to get up the, the ladder into the conning tower and down the ladder into the control room. And here he is. He just He just falls right through this hole. He's like, no, I don't buy it. He said somebody assassinated him is basically what it was. The Mm -hmm. other story he told me was that he was doing his security guard thing. He was on duty and a woman came up to him and asked if the museum had put in hologram technology because on the top of the conning tower, she had seen a man standing there on the deck and she described this guy And she said that he had something on his sleeve. And the security guard realized that who this woman had seen was probably Captain Dan Gallery. Because in the United States Navy, when you're in dress uniform, you wear your officer's insignia on your sleeve. Ah, yeah. Makes sense. Mm hmm. And the third museum on your list of the third favorites. museum, yes. <laughs> the third museum, yes. Okay, that has got to be the Haunted Museum in Nottingham, England. This is such a fun place. It is a museum of haunted objects. That's all they do. All haunted objects, all the time. And it's fabulous. You are not allowed to take pictures or do any recording in there. 
you can take pictures in the gift shop. They don't mind that at all, but you can't record. And I wanted so desperately to share this with lights out sure. viewers and listeners. So I told the, the, the girl at the gift shop, I said, you know, I do this podcast. I would really, really love to just record you talking about some of the experiences you've had here as an employee. And she said, well, I don't know. I'd have to ask. And she actually asked the owner and the owner gave me permission. She, the, the owner gave this girl permission to tell me stories and I got to follow her around and record her telling these stories. So that is going to be an upcoming episode of Lights Out. Awesome. It's very nice. The next one is Victoria and Albert Museum. The one after that is the Haunted Museum in Nottingham. So be on the lookout for that Lights Out episode. It's coming up very, very, very soon. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This museum is just wild. They have cameras all over the place and they catch stuff. There is, as soon as you walk in the door from the gift shop into the museum proper, there is a Victorian funeral cart. Now, this is not the horse-drawn carriage with the beautiful glass sides and the, the, all the filigree on top. This is a smaller version of that that is a hand-drawn cart that people pull. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I had never heard of such a thing. I haven't either. Yeah, it looks just exactly like one of the horse-drawn hearses, but it's smaller, and it's got that black filigree over the, the glass, and it's just gorgeous. But the front of it is a handle like a wagon handle. And at two o'clock in the morning, one night, they had this camera on, and the camera caught movement. And the handle of this cart is just lying on the floor and it happens so quickly but it's on a loop they 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 actually show this on a loop on a camera uh, on a screen next to the cart and this handle flips up and then down just that quick wow huh it is so cool they've got so many haunted dolls there they've got the a doll that belonged to a serial killer Ooh. Oh. That German serial killer. <laughs> and it was found like under a floorboard in his apartment. And it's mm. super, super creepy. They were gifted a doll that came to them packed in salt and wrapped in bubble wrap. <laughs> oh, yikes. Somebody did not want <laughs> yeah. whatever was in that doll getting out. And it is just, it is displayed packed in salt and wrapped in bubble wrap until they can figure out what to do with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like, you're like, do we want to unwrap it and see why they did this to it? Let's do some research on how we can examine this safely before we even attempt to unwrap it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. It's just super fun. And if when you go there, there's a place where you go past one of the rooms and there's, there's one room that is all skulls, like haunted skulls, like skulls that they found in plague pits. And Victorian era skulls is just completely metal. And if you go through that room into the uh, the next room, the next room is actually carved out of the sandstone that the shop sits on. And when they bought the shop, this is the third the third place that the museum has been. And when they came to this building, 
the owners of the building said, well, there's a cave behind the wall. So they're like, oh, really? We got to check this out. So they actually, they, they were shown where it was and they knocked a hole in the wall and lo and behold, there was a cave carved out of the rock and they, they, they kept it just the way it was. And they, there was a grave in the cave behind that wall and the sand, the, the, the tombstone was just centuries old, too weathered to be readable. But they, they kept the grave. There was also a little pet cemetery back there. So they left that. And in this room, you can't, th- there's like glass. You can't go into the pet cemetery. You can't go into where the grave is. But there's enough room for several people to stand. And they have two skulls, a male and a female skull that you can hold and you can have your picture taken with them, which is just. <laughs> indescribably cool (laughs) because why wouldn't you have a skull that you can hold and take selfies with i mean why not (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean heck of a souvenir heck of a photo op so of course i got my picture taken holding the skull (laughs) (laughs) of course as one would (laughs) yeah but yeah that's absolutely on my on my top three list of awesome metal haunted museums Well, you know, what's fascinating about that story there with the Nottingham Museum is when you think about this is the third location they've been in and they had no idea that it has this cave behind it with these graves and stuff. It's like, was this kind of calling to them? Like it was trying to say, this is the, because per- it really is. I mean, if you're going to put a museum somewhere, <laughs> that the is the perfect do spot it. for it. It's like, <laughs> yes. Calling yes. to them. And the, I, I, I said they moved a couple of times and there has been a spirit that has moved with them. The second museum, the second incarnation of the museum was in a town called Mapperley. And there was a ghost that sort of wandered into the museum there. And a psychic medium told them that the spirit's name was Jess and that she had died very soon after she had been married. So they put a wedding, a white wedding dress out for her. And she's kind of attached herself to that. So when they moved from Mapperley to Nottingham, Jess came with them attached to the dress. So, yeah, they, they have several resident ghosts, and that is one of them. <laughs> so the screaming mummy, is, is this like a mummy that sits up and screams at people? Or what, how did it get this Screaming name? mummy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. My favorite. Well, go lay down. My dog wants to climb in my lap. <laughs> of course. Of course. So the Screaming Mummy of the, the Field Museum, let's back up just a little bit. The Museum of Science and Industry is actually housed in the last remaining building from the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. Very that was cool. held in Chicago. When, they, when this, the fair closed, these buildings were not designed. They were basically plaster over like plywood. They weren't designed to last very much longer than the fair. So most of them came down, but they did save one. And that became the Museum of Science and Industry. But before that, it was the Museum of Natural History, the Field Museum, basically. When the field, when the field's collection outgrew that building, they built an entirely new museum several miles north on Lakeshore Drive and they moved everything 
by hand. I mean, this this was this was um, in in the 1920s that this happened. They, they they basically moved everything in the museum by hand and then left the the building, which became the Museum of Science and Industry. One of the artifacts that they moved was uh, the the entire Egyptian collection, including there there are 13 human mummies in the Field Museum's collection. I'm sorry, 23 human mummies and more than 30 animal mummies. One of these mummies is a man named Harwa, and he is the one who one of the ones who made the trek from the old building to the new building in the 1920s. Harwa lived about 2,800 years ago in Egypt's 22nd dynasty, basically somewhere between 900 and 700 BC. He was the storekeeper for the Temple of Amun. He had a position of very high power. He was in charge of making sure the storerooms were filled, making sure the wine tributes came in, making sure all the the tributes of grain were collected properly, and then divvying up those tributes that came in for the use of the priests. So a very high position of responsibility. So when he died at about 40 years old, he was mummified in accordance with his station. His mummy is very well preserved. He actually became something of a celebrity. He was called upon in 1925 to be sort of an ambassador. In 1925, the Field Museum pioneered the use of X-ray technology for studying mummies so that you didn't have to unwrap them. The Victorians were all about, oh, let's unwrap the mummy, see what it looks like. By the 1920s, they were like, yeah, this, this really isn't good science. Let's, let's x-ray them instead of unwrapping the whole thing. So they really pioneered that work. So in, in 1939, the New York had a World's Fair, and the General Electric X-ray Corporation partnered with the Field Museum for a display at the World's Fair in New York. So the display was this backdrop of black velour. And in front of that backdrop, there was a beautiful colored mummy case. And next to that mummy case was Harwa. So someone would walk up to this glass case and push a button. The lights would go down and an x-ray machine would fire up 125,000 volts of electricity zap Harwa with it, and there was be a perfect x-ray cast on the screen behind him. Wow. So that you could see what he looked like inside. The x-ray stayed up on the screen for 30 seconds, and then the lights would come back up, and the the the, the mummy case would come back into view, and the, the Harwa would come back into view, and the, he would just wait patiently there for the next person to come along and push the button again. Now, I would want to reassure everyone Harwa didn't care if he got blasted with electricity <laughs> and x-rayed many, 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 many dozens of times a day. But the the glass of the case was leaded glass to protect fairgoers from all that radiation. So Harwa actually traveled to New York twice for the World's Fair. He was there in 1939 for the season, got sent back to the Field Museum, and the, the exhibit was such a success that they wanted him back for the 1940 season. So in 1940, he went to New York from Chicago via San Francisco. Due to a shipping clerk's error, he got lost. <laughs> I'm not going to say, um, that's a weird route. <laughs> right. Some shipping clerk 
lost him for a while. And there were panic telegrams flying back and forth between the museum's curators and the the museum higher-ups and the people at the World's Fair and the people in San Francisco. And they finally found him. And when they realized who they had, Harwag actually got invited to a couple of banquets in San Francisco before he continued on his way to New York. (laughs) And uh, these various organizations probably welcomed him because he was certain to make no after-dinner speeches. Well, that's true. (laughs) That is too funny. So after the 1940 World's Fair ended, Harwa was sent back to New York, including all the electricity equipment, the x-ray equipment, so that the museum could put on a display so that the people at the Field Museum, the visitors to the Field Museum, could watch this incredible display, too. Here's an interesting thing about Harwa, besides his history-making appearance at the World's Fair. He's the first muse- he's the first ancient Egyptian to take a plane ride. He's also the only ancient Egyptian that archaeologists have ever found that is named Harwa. And the third interesting thing about Harwa is that he screams. Now, in 1933, this was several years before he went off to the New York for the World's Fair. In 1933, there was an incident in the Hall of Egyptian Archaeology. Now, this, the Hall of Egyptian Archaeology no longer exists. They, the field revamped the entire exhibit in the late 1980s. And now it's really, really cool. There's like a, a mastaba, an old, a, a Middle Kingdom tomb with wall paintings on. And then you, you go down this spiral staircase. I don't know how many steps. And then there's the actual exhibit. And that's where the, the mummies are dis- displayed in various cases kind of scattered around the place. And they have like this, a marketplace set up and it's, it's just really, really cool. But back in the day, back in the 1930s, and this is the exhibit that I remember <laughs> again from going to field trips at the field museum and school, at school. It used to be just all the artifacts in one great big room. And the long, there was a long glass case along one long side of this room. And the mummies were displayed basically chronologically. So one winter night, uh, uh, the other thing I have to say about this mummy case is that it was filled with nitrogen gas. And that was to avoid any sort of insect infestation of what's well, it's organic tissue. I mean, it's, it's human bodies. They don't want bugs in them. So this case was filled with non-breathable air. It was filled with nitrogen gas. So one winter night, there was a security guard making his rounds at the museum, and he heard this blood-curdling scream coming from the Egyptian room. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So he blew his whistle to summon the other security guards, and they all raced to the Egyptian hall. They were absolutely convinced that there was some poor museum patron that had gotten himself locked into the Egyptian hall and freaked out because he saw all these dead mummified bodies, which I would too. You know what? Not going to lie. So they're, 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 they flick on the lights and they're, they've got their flashlights out and they're looking for whoever's left in the hall. And there wasn't anyone there. They're looking behind all the cases. They've got their flashlights out. They're looking in every corner. They cannot find anyone. And all of a sudden, one of the guards 
looks at the long case of mummies and he says, look here, this mummy is off its base. All of these mummies were displayed on slant boards. Uh, these boards were at about a 30, 45 degree angle with a, a, a little place at the foot to keep the mummy from sliding off the end of the board. And there was about six inches of board in between the mummy's side and the side of the board where it ended. So they've got plenty of room on each of these boards. But this one mummy was face down on the floor next to its slant board. What? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason we know about this is that Henry Field, a curator in physical anthropology from 1926 to 1941, wrote a biog an autobiography in 1953, and he wrote about what happened. And he was the poor schmuck who had to go into the case <laughs> after they pumped the nitrogen gas out and pick up this mummy and put it back on its slant board. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote, there is still no explanation of the scream or of the fallen mummy. It is just one more example of things we cannot explain. I think we know what happened. The mummy was falling, so he was screaming. He was right, yeah. hit the ground, which he did. So yeah, it's understandable. Fall out of bed? Wah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, what an amazing story. This is a great. That's that was fantastic. one of the first ghost stories I ever heard. My father told it to me at, around the dining room table. And I, I love it so. <laughs> and yeah, who knew an that decades story. later I would I would be writing about it. And I it, as soon as I knew I was going to be doing a book on haunted museums, that shot to the top of my list. That was I knew that it had to go in there. Well, and the great point about it too is that you have field who actually wrote about it because this is something you really wouldn't want to put out there to people because you're gonna have people, first of all, say, uh, were you not taking care of it properly? And then mm. other people who would be like, Right. I'm sure that, that <laughs> happened. And yeah. he put it down. So it's like, you know, that makes it believable to me because he didn't really have anything to gain from putting that down on paper. Right, right. I, he, he completely fessed up to it. And yeah, he, he wrote about it in his autobiography. He he pointed out that um, it's it's right on the lakeshore. And so is the, the MSI. These buildings... And all the buildings of the Columbian Exposition, too, had to be built on concrete pads because the ground there is so marshy that they have to really pay attention to the foundations of the buildings. They can't just drive pilings down into this marshy soil because the, the building is going to lean to one side or the other. They have to kind of pour a concrete pad that floats on the marshy substrate. And they build the building on top of that concrete pad. And that's what he pointed out in, in his writing. He said, one of the naked withered bodies had fallen from its base and was lying face down on the linoleum inside the poisoned case. I studied it carefully the next morning. He's trying to be scientific about it. The base extended at least four inches on each side of the dried skin and bones. No living person could have entered the poisoned case. No vibration in the building could have knocked it off its base without rending the walls, for the museum floats on an island of concrete, there being no hard pan on the filled-in land along the lakefront. 
So he's trying to he's he's trying to explain to people there's no explanation for this. Yeah, he's <laughs> and debunking here's why. it. Yeah, he's 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 putting all the debunking in there, saying, okay, was it something else that could have caused it? Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you'd had an earthquake strong enough to gutter the body off of its platform, then you would have had a lot more damage. Absolutely. Surely. Yeah. yeah. She's trying to be scientific about yes. it. Yes. Sylvia, you are a marvelous storyteller. We love listening to you. And I have several of your books. Definitely going to get this one. Where can people find your uh, latest book? And then obviously they could probably find your other books in the same place. Yeah, yeah. Well, all of my books are on Amazon, of course. There are actually three audiobooks. Three of my books have been turned into audiobooks. So if you go to audible.com, you can listen to those. Um, those are... 44 Years in Darkness, Fractured Spirits, and there's, there's one of my, there's one of my romance fiction novels from way back in the day called Double Double Love and Trouble that also got turned into an audiobook. If you're into that sort of thing, it's fun. Amazon doesn't need our help. <laughs> so <laughs> go to Amazon if you really feel that you want to, if you have like a gift certificate or something. But I like to send people to a place called bookshop.org. Now, the neat thing about Bookshop is that with every purchase price, with every purchase that you make, a little bit of it goes into a fund that is divvied up between independent bookstores at the end of the month. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. So it's a really good way to support indie bookstores. Yeah, so definitely. Bookshop.org and look me up. I'm all over the place there. And sylviashaltz.wordpress.com is where you can find Everything else, including episodes of Lights Out. Yes, which I encourage people to check out. Are you on Instagram too? You know what? I think I'm going to be getting an Instagram account sometime in 2024. People have kind of talked me into it. <laughs> right now, I'm the Lights Out podcast is anywhere you listen to podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever. Um, Lights Out is also on YouTube if you want to see the pretty pictures. And that's where the links on the page go to, the sylviashultz.wordpress.com. If you click on the Lights Out page, those are the YouTube links. Great. Uh, yeah. And right now on the WordPress site, I am smack in the middle of my annual 12 Nightmares of Christmas posts. Oh, nice. Very yeah. cool. There are some recipes. There are some ghost stories. There's things about Victorian ways of celebrating Christmas. Just really, really fun stuff. Awesome. Well, Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. I had a blast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Sylvia. Kelly, that was a great interview with Sylvia. And I'm definitely going to be getting that book. Yeah, I'm looking forward to us getting that. And then we can both read it. Oh, okay. You're saying I have <laughs> to share with you? You do have to share. We did share something with the listeners this episode. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye.